Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this afternoon to the prophecy of Isaiah. And I would direct your attention to Isaiah 9. We return again now for the last time in this series to verse 6. We'll be considering uh, the end of verse 6 and verse 7. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We'll be considering together that last title given to us in this series, the Prince of Peace, and then what follows in verse 7. If we were only left with the world news, and the annals of world history, it would be an exceeding grim affair. It would not be a happy day, any day, to be faced with only what is presented to us on the stage of time and history. But thanks be unto God, that is not all that we are left with. That's not all that's set before us. Indeed, it's not what's preeminently set before us. We have the entrance of the kingdom of God into the world. This is a true reality, and it is revealed to us. Notice or remember what verse 2 says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. And so it is for us. We have a light that has shined. And the Lord has enabled us to see the glory of Zion and of the church and kingdom of of the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize that this is what history is all about. That this lies at the dead center of all that is unfolding and all that God is doing. In the present hour, the Lord is steering the helm of history and guiding all of the affairs of mankind to this end, the good of Salem, the glory of Zion. And so we take great delight in this. We take great delight in the fact that there is another king, not just the presidents and prime ministers kings and other rulers of the nations that we can readily see and hear from. There is another king, one Jesus, and there is another kingdom, and it is a kingdom established in this world that shall never die or perish, but rather advance and grow and will endure throughout the ages and into and throughout all of eternity. And here we are, the likes of us, the most unlikely of all people, found within its walls, found numbered among its citizens. How is it that we're not just citizens of perishing empires, wrapped up with all of the fomenting foolish men? How is it possible that we have been brought under the reign of the great king? 
that we have been, found, been given a place in this, in this glorious kingdom. It's astounding to us. It should be astounding to us. And it should shape and mold and direct all of our thoughts about what we see all around us. Here the Lord comes, having caused a great light to shine in the darkness. He intensifies that light by the proclamation of his own name. So he tells us in verse 6, what was then coming in the days of Isaiah and now in our day has come, namely uh, the, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we heard something about that, the God-man this morning. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, but his name is proclaimed to us. And so over recent sermons in the afternoon, we have been considering the components of this name. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In reflecting and meditating upon this glorious name of Jesus Christ, we do so with an eye, as we're taught in the Bible, as we're taught in the Psalms, that we are to run into this name as into a strong tower. So we're not just hearing, okay, here's the, the trumpet blast, the voice of God who declares his name to us. That's wonderful in itself. But that is to result in us running into that name. What does that mean exactly? Because we're, we're not talking about something we do with our feet in the first place, are we? We're talking about the exercise of our soul. We have his name, of course, engraven upon us in baptism and in, in being a part of the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The believing people of God are brought into union with him and are given his name as a bride receives the name of her husband. And so... His name becomes our name. We are Christians and all that that entails. But that's still not all, right? We, we as God's people, when we hear the proclamation of the name of Jesus Christ, that name which is above every name, the name at which all, every last man, woman, boy, and girl will eventually bow their knees and confess that he's Lord. When we hear that name, it is to draw our souls to him. So we're, we're to be hearing these sermons and reading these words in the text with a view to how uh, and in what ways we are to take refuge under the name. So that in our Christian experience, we are drawing upon the fact that he is the wonderful one, the miraculous one, that he is the counselor, that he is the mighty God. That we are, we are to be thinking along these lines, that he is the everlasting father and finding our refuge under him. And so we come to the last of these syllables, if you will, in his name, the prince of, of peace. We come with a view to hallowing the name of our Lord, not taking it in vain, but hearing it, heeding it, heralding it. We'll note three things. First of all, the prince. So we learn, first of all, that this, this um, child that is born, this son that is given, uh, the incarnate word, that he is, first of all, a prince. 
Now, that doesn't come entirely as a shock, perhaps, to those in Isaiah's day, because the Lord had established under the Old Testament economy a kingship. He'd given promises to David about his seed who would sit upon his throne. There's anticipation that there is a divine king coming from the descent of David who would be David's Lord and who would reign and who would bring forth victory. Right? All of the Old Testament prophecies and psalms and so on feed into this stream of thought. He is a prince. And we turn to the New Testament and here he is. He's described, as we saw in Revelation 1, as the prince of the king's of the earth, that he is the king of kings and lord of lords, is the king above all other kings. We read in the Old Testament that he will be called Messiah the Prince or Christ the Prince. Here is the one who's described as the governor of all of the nations. And so we see him endowed with all power and all authority in heaven and in earth. We see, as we sing in Psalm 2, that the Father has set his king upon the holy hill of Zion, that he rules and reigns, and that he is beyond the reach of all of the, the machinations of men who seek to wage war against him, that indeed he laughs them to scorn. He drops his, his scepter upon them to shatter them uh, like a piece of pottery, and so on. This is the one who reigns above Zion's glorious hill. And he has, as king, he has a kingdom. So he's a prince. But a prince means that there's a kingdom over which the prince reigns. And he's established this victorious kingdom, which I made opening references to in the, in the introduction. The Lord Jesus Christ has come in order to erect a kingdom whose walls are impenetrable, whose walls only grow with one living stone placed upon another, all built upon the bedrock of the cornerstone of himself. And he is in the process of extending this kingdom. He's calling out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the kingdom of the devil, out of the lost and fallen world. He is calling sinners unto himself so that they are no longer citizens of the kingdom of darkness and of the devil, but are made citizens of the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And they are brought into all of the privileges that that entails. He establishes a government for his kingdom, right? There's officers that are appointed. There's ordinances that are given. There's laws that are provided. There are censures that are enacted. And the Lord bestows the blessings of his grace. He says, I'm not going to withhold any good thing. This is the most generous king ever known to the sons of men. He comes in enormous bounty, having all things at his disposal, having secured everything. He then pours it out in copious degrees upon his, his people, upon this kingdom, sending blessings of grace to them. He preserves his kingdom and supports it. And we see all of those. The devil comes with like a roaring lion. He comes as a mighty warrior. And he comes with his battling rams. And he comes with all of his arsenal. And he seeks to destroy uh, this kingdom. Generation after generation. Other times he comes subtly. He infiltrates through wicked men. 
comes like, wolf, like a wolf amidst the, the sheep and seeks to erode things from the inside. He comes in subtlety as well as in flagrant ways. And, and the Lord is here and he's preserving his kingdom. It's, it's undented and undiminished. He, he supports it all the way amidst all of the, the privations that the church endures, all of the persecutions of wicked men who hate the church of Jesus Christ, who seek to destroy and who are bloodthirsty and who martyr the Lord's people. All of it comes to, no, to nothing. Again and again, wave after wave crashes upon these walls. And all of it runs off with ultimately only the improvement of his church, right? In the midst of temptations, he is a prince and he stands to defend his people. I mean, even the most godly believer, if left for a split second, to themselves, would fall like a leaf from a tree. I don't mean in the face of overwhelming and enormous, irre irresistible, powerful temptations. I mean the smallest flicker of temptation. We would cave, we would yield, we would fall to our own shame and the dishonor of the Lord. But we have a prince, a prince who stands in the midst of his people. He defends and delivers again and again in his mercy. He's a prince who defends us in the midst of suffering, all of the sufferings, the sufferings that would overwhelm us from within, sufferings we create, sufferings of our own sin, the miseries that come from that, the sufferings that come from living in a fallen world, the waves, the floods of suffering. We have a prince who stands in our midst. He defends, preserves, keeps, supports his people amidst these floods buoys them up, carries them through, parts the waters, delivers. He's the one who restrains and conquers, as our catechism says, restrains and conquers all of our enemies. If we were left to defeat the devil, there'd be no hope. If we were left to defeat all of the ideology, the, the wicked and pernicious notions and religions and philosophies of this present world and we were to muster our strength to to subdue these things it'd be a fool's errand but there's a prince a child has been born a son has been given and he is the prince of peace and he can restrain he can bottle up he can overthrow he can push back and does all of our enemies he can take the pits which they dig for others and cause them to fall into them themselves he can take uh, all of their attempts to curse like Balak and transform them one after another into benedictions and blessings. He conquers the enemies. He steers the helm of history for the good of Zion because he is the prince. He is the great prince. And so he teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come. O mighty prince, O captain of Jehovah's hosts, O king of Salem. Cause thy kingdom to come. Children, you know the language. Cause the kingdom of Satan to be destroyed. Cause the kingdom of grace to be advanced. Cause the kingdom of glory to be hastened. Cause all these things, right? The language again of our catechism. And so the Lord does so and he, he causes that kingdom to advance. He remembers the promise to his own son to give them the heathen and uh, the nations as his as inheritance and the church spreads. 
And we see it go from the upper room in Jerusalem and Pentecost and into Judea and Samaria and carried to the uttermost ends of the earth. And we're conscious that this is continuing to happen. Indeed, that there are far brighter days that are yet to come. The Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, the church furnished with pure ordinances, which are dispensed under the blessing of God. Jesus Christ, the Prince, standing and ruling the hearts of his own elect people and causing that kingdom to come with power. And so we see that his name is Prince, Prince of Peace. That brings us secondly to the peace, right? He is a Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Salem, of peace. He is this great peace. The world shouts all the time, peace, peace, where God says there is no peace. And they look for peace and find it not. They pursue peace and it comes, never comes about. Indeed, unlike sinful, fallen, worldly, unbelieving princes who are all about using their position in order to accumulate for themselves, they fleece those entrusted to their care in order to buoy up and strengthen themselves. They make war constantly because of the lusts of their own flesh and their own depravity and foolishness and so on. All an attempt in one way or another to amass for themselves. And then they have the, the cheek to turn around and speak about peacekeeping forces. Sending peacekeeping forces, which amounts to tanks and ballistics and fighter jets and bombers and so on. To which many shake their head in unbelief, undoubt. They talk about peace talks which never result, which result in a lot of things, but never a lot of talk and no peace, no true peace. But here is the Prince of Peace. You know, we read from Psalm 72, that beautiful song about the, the princely glory of the kingship of Jesus Christ. And it includes this, doesn't it? It includes this, this language in Psalm uh, 72, it speaks uh, early on, the mountains shall bring peace to the people in verse 3. But then you go down especially to verse 7. In his days, that is in Messiah the Prince's days, in the days of Christ, shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He's the one who brings peace in his, in his wake. We sing about it in Psalm 46. You know, it's it's... Amazing, because it starts with all this tumultuous, you know, kind of catastrophic imagery of the mountains being tossed into the seas and the, the overturning of the world and, and all of this fearful, scary descriptions of the, the circumstances in which the Lord's people find themselves. And yet, it then speaks about God being our refuge, as you well know. He's in the midst of his people. We are in the midst of him and so on. But it goes on in verse 9. Unto the ends of all the earth, wars into peace he turns. The bow he breaks, the spear he cuts, in fire the chariots burns. Right here is the Lord who brings peace, the great king, the refuge of his people. And he does so, the prince of peace does so, by the proclamation of the gospel of peace. 
This is the sword, the word of God that comes out of his mouth, the, the proclamation, the publication of, of the gospel of peace. And we're, we're told in Romans 14 that it, the kingdom of God is peace, that it is peace, righteousness. And you can see it in his reign, right? He, he bears long with his enemies. He doesn't snuff them out instantly. He bears long and patiently calling them, redirecting them to repentance. He stands ready to forgive all who come to him, all enemies who have waged war against him and blasphemed him and dishonored him and disobeyed him. He stands ready as the Prince of Peace to receive all who come to him by faith and to bestow upon them the riches of his grace. That peace is so secure. Why? Because it was purchased with his own blood. The Lord Jesus Christ purchases it with his own blood. Right? We think in terms of worldly princes as they, they gain power in order to get for themselves power, prestige, you know, resources, money, whatever else. Here is the one king who stands apart from others, who's enthroned and given his position entirely for the benefit of those he serves. So Christ comes as the Prince of Peace in order to empty and give out of his abundance at the, at the high cost of his own self and sacrifice. He purchases peace with his, his own blood. He does so amidst war, of course. You think of how the, the days of David were days of war, and they're followed by the days of Solomon, which were days of peace. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to defeat the devil and sin and Satan and death and so on. He comes as the man of war in order to gain the victory. And it's as a consequence of that that peace flows in its wake, that his reign is characterized with abundant peace. He gives to his people peace with God. Left to ourselves, we're at war with God, enmity with God. Opposed to God. Refusal to submit to his claims and to his word. Jesus comes and he says, as we heard this morning, as the mediator, the God-man, he reconciles what would be otherwise irreconcilable. He takes where there has been this cosmic, nuclear, spiritually speaking, war, and he speaks peace so that now those who were once far off and enemies are are able to obtain peace with God. They're, they're at peace in their relationship with him. Right? That's the whole, it's one of the things that's highlighted later on in a well-known chapter in Isaiah, chapter 53, where it says in verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. And so he secures peace with God. He also secures the peace of God. So that not only objectively, now the guilt's removed and the pollution is cleansed and so on. And now there's a reconciliation with God. But he actually grants the peace of God in the court of our conscience. So that that turbulent and afflicted conscience, tormented conscience by our guilt is now brought to a state of peace, peace of conscience before the Lord. 
and the peace of God actually rules and overrules in the hearts and minds of God's people, keeping them in that state of peace so that there is perfect peace, or in the Hebrew, peace, peace for those whose mind is stayed on thee. Right? There's this Prince of Peace who rules in our hearts and grants that the peace is both objective in relationship to God and subjective within our own hearts and within our own minds. He maintains that peace so that it's not broken, undermined, overthrown, but that it endures and that amidst our sins, which are multitudinous, amidst our afflictions and trials, which are likewise plentiful, the Lord enables his people to pass through all of this with the peace of God in their hearts. It means that the Lord brings about the peace, peace among men. His people are transformed into his likeness. He is the peacemaker, the Prince of Peace. But he enables us by grace to also, in likeness to him, know the blessedness of being a peacemaker. And the Lord's people are able then to do what, again, they could never do. In order to draw near and to be reconciled to brethren and to forgive and to forbear and to be patient. And to be in the closest and most intimate and affectionate association with those that they would other, never otherwise in this world be bound to. Rather than as the world who keeps their distance who creates space, who conjures up all sorts of excuses in their mind in order for hostility to be maintained among brethren. No, the gospel destroys this. The Lord's people become makers of peace, peace among men. This is why the godly answer, you look at nations that are being torn apart, the answer isn't what America does, which is to compound and multiply the problems. What's the answer? What was the answer in the old days? Send peacekeeping forces, right? What is that? It's called missionaries, right? The answer is for us to send missionaries. It's the lust of the flesh and sin and all the other ruckus garbage inside our hearts that creates ultimately the manifestation of these physical outbreaks of hostility and so on. It's the gospel alone that can heal it. If we were multiplying missionaries, that th these are bearers of peace. And it is through the proclamation of the gospel of peace that the Lord can actually bring peace to communities and people groups and nations and so on and so forth. That's where the emphasis ought to lie rather than sticking our nose as we do in another way in everybody else's business. Within the walls of Zion, within this kingdom, the Lord teaches us to love and to pray for peace. Think of the end of Psalm, 72, or Psalm 122. We joyed when they said, let's go up to the house of God. There's joy in coming into the public assembly. But you'll notice how this is such a dominant theme in Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for God's house. That they, may, that they shall prosper that love thee. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say peace be within thee. 
Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek thy good. Right? This is what the Lord's people love and desire to cultivate. And so he's not just a prince. He is that. He's triumphant. He's irresistible. He's untoppable. He is victorious and triumphant in every way. But he's also a prince of peace who brings peace in his wake and under his reign wherever it is found. For those of you who are unconverted, this is a word in season for you, isn't it? Because here you are at enmity with the Prince of Peace. Here you are saying, we will not have this king to rule over us. I'll be my own king. I'll be my own Lord. Which is to say, I will be a pathetic slave of sin and Satan. I would choose that, the bondage that comes with that, which brings nothing but disaster and misery in its wake. But here is the Christ's reign. Christ's reign of peace is, is set before you. And you're content with, with being at war with him. You say, well, I'm not at war with him. I'm just indifferent to him. There's no such thing. There's absolutely no such thing. Those who are not by grace brought savingly under his reign are at war with him. You're living your life in enmity against God. And you're saying in all of your absolute, irrational, sinful stupidity, no, 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 I will not have this man, this prince of peace to rule over me. Your works demonstrate it, your life, your ambitions, your thoughts, your mouth. It all demonstrates it. The fact is that without the Prince of Peace, you're left with no friends in this world. Who are your friends? The devil? He is the arch enemy of your soul and desires nothing but your destruction. Who else are your friends? The wicked of the world? The unbelieving? They can never prove to be true friends. And some of you are tempted to say, well, at least I have my dog. My dog is my friend. Sorry. That's God's dog. That's Christ. He, he, he is the Lord. The, the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He is the Lord's. And so even the creatures of this world aren't your friends. They belong to him. You have nothing without him. Consider all that you lose in not coming to the Prince of Peace. The loss of peace with God. No peace of conscience. Whatever you do to quell it through your religious exercises, you can't quiet that conscience, which torments you in a measure now, but my friend will torment you into eternity in ways you can't wrap your mind around. As it's gnawing away, Forever, you have your soul to lose. What, are you going to gain the whole world and lose your soul? This is the definition of folly. And so the Lord comes and he says, I am, I am the Prince of Peace. I am the one who reigns. And I'm pleased to throw open the doors of my kingdom to poor sinners to come and to find refuge in me and with me. To come find safety in me. The Lord Jesus Christ is a prince of peace. He welcomes sinners. He welcomes them. 
He is delighted for sinners to turn and live. He is delighted for sinners to turn all of their hope and all of their confidence to him. And he says, come. Indeed, when the Lord Jesus Christ sends his ministers to preach the gospel of peace, do you know what that, what's happening? The Lord is coming in peace to you. He is coming with terms of peace to you. He's coming as that prince of peace. And in the gospel of peace, calling you to peace with him. But that can only be, that can only be secured on his terms. And his terms are through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood. And so you must come to lay hold of the crucified king who now, who now reigns forevermore as the Lord of glory. Christian, there's comfort here for you. A prince of peace. Think of this kingdom amid all of the chaos of the world. I can't emphasize strongly enough. Indeed, I think I need to preach a whole series of sermons on this. The centrality of the church. The high and biblical apostolic doctrine of the church. To think God's thoughts after him. To think biblically about time and eternity. About the world and heaven. To think about history. Right? We have to see here is a glorious kingdom. Zion is the glory. Right? This is where God dwells. This is where God's word is proclaimed. This is the light that shines in the darkness. It's, it's the church. It's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the, the glory of Zion. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. And we need to think in these terms. This is what's beautiful in the world. And we can look out across the landscape at all the other chaos of empires that are completely at war with the king of heaven. Governments who are doing everything in their power to wage war against him. And we can sneeze at them. We should do no more. Our gaze should be fixed upon this kingdom, which fills the entire expanse of our imagination and thoughts. To see that this is the sun, the light, the glory that is found in this world. Christ dwelling in the midst of his people. And rejoice that we are numbered among its citizens. Rejoice that all of the investments we make. People make investments into their businesses, which is lawful and good. And when done to the, in service to Christ and his glory, it's, it's a great thing. Businesses all bust eventually. Right, bank, banks break, especially with immoral monetary policies. All the other institutions that we think of as kind of rigorous. Governments, nations, all end up in the dustbin. Here is a kingdom that never does. And as we invest our lives, our time, our strength, all that we are into this kingdom, it's with the confidence that it endures forever. It's an investment that pays dividends infinitely and eternally. It lasts forever. No wonder we're told to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So he's a prince of peace. Thirdly, the prosperity of the prince. Verse 7. The prosperity of the prince. We saw in verse 6, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
And now it picks up in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Here we see the prosperity of the prince. The increase, we're told, the increase of his government and peace. Notice the language, there shall be no end to it. So there's no end to the increase. It goes on upon the throne of David, upon his government. He'll order and establish it from henceforth, even forevermore. And so you, you, you have to grab a hold of this, right? The, the picture is pushing our gaze to the very limits of the future horizon. And he's saying it continues to increase and it continues from henceforth even forevermore. So we have a prediction in the days of Isaiah. And it begins with the incarnation, which we see at the beginning of verse 6. And that has been fulfilled. But it continues in verse 7 with progress and advance of this kingdom. And this is still unfulfilled. This has not been completed. We haven't gotten to, if there's no end and it's from henceforth and forevermore, then it's, we're still in a position of seeing it unfold. You'll remember the language of what we saw a long time ago now in chapter 2 in verses 1 uh, to 4, verses 1 to 5. It shall come to pass in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. Many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways. We will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and so on. And it goes on to describe how instruments are going to be, instruments of war are going to be transformed into instruments of productivity. Instruments of destruction changed into instruments of productivity. And we're not going to repeat all that. You'll hopefully remember some of it, the significance of all that that prophecy entails. But the Lord shall reign as the Prince of Peace until he makes all of his enemies his footstool. And so there's future glory and there's triumph of the gospel yet coming in this world. Now, I don't need to rehearse everything we saw in Isaiah 2. But you recognize this is both internal and external, right? It says that he will, he will reign on the throne of David. He's doing that right now in the highest heavens. He's going to order and establish his kingdom with judgment and justice. He's, he's doing that. He's ordering and establishing his kingdom. He's the one who has all power and authority to do as he wishes as the ascended king, everything depends upon him. And so internally inside the kingdom, he's furnishing it, establishing, ordering it. He's providing ordinances and all that's, in, that's entailed. He's giving it the, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to carry it forward under his power. But it's also external. There's expansion. There's the increase of, of the government as well. And the point here, I think, for us that's so helpful is how is this ever going to happen? Right? We, we've seen the gospel infiltrating the nations of the world, and it continues to happen. And we give our strength as we're able in prayer 
and support and service to that end. But we know that it's an anticipation of greater glory to come prior to the coming of second coming of Jesus Christ. We know the millennium and all of its glory is to come with power. And yet we look out the window and we think, how is this humanly possible? For these nations, right, some of them, Middle East, 99% Muslim, South and Central America, huge percentage Roman Catholic, in our own country, you know, the vast majority government that's completely derailed and rebellion against the Lord, and so the case is with so many others. How is this ever going to happen? And the part that I love about this text is the very end of it, because it gives us the answer. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The government's on his shoulder. The increase of his government is going to be without end. The establishment of it will be henceforth even forevermore. How will this happen? I don't have to understand all the details and all of the outworkings, though it's not that difficult to begin to at least put some of the pieces together. But who cares? At the end of the day, the answer is the zeal of the Lord of hosts, Jehovah of hosts, will perform this. The Lord himself has pledged the fulfillment of it. And what that means is this. It all is on Christ. It's all on the king. It's all in his hands. It all hangs on the Prince of Peace. And that's enough for me. That's way more than enough for me. That it's all given to him to bring to pass. It's Christ's zeal, right? That word for zeal carries with it the idea of burning, right? Burning, think fire when you think of zeal. The ardor of Christ, the earnestness, the perseverance of the Lord Jesus Christ to overcome all difficulties. I mean, the beautiful thing for us is to remember as we're so remiss to do, he is far more concerned about his cause than we ever could be. He's way more concerned about his cause and kingdom than all of us combined and multiplied could ever be. And he says that his zeal, as Jehovah of hosts, think now, when you think of hosts, this includes the innumerable throng of overwhelmingly powerful angelic hosts. Jehovah of hosts. At other times in the Old Testament, it seems to include as well his people here on earth. But he's the Lord. He's the Jehovah of, of hosts. All history serves his end. And his end is the advance of his kingdom. The worst things that happen in the world advance his cause. The best things in the world that ever happen advance his cause. His divine resources are employed as the God-man. You see him going to, to the world power of Egypt. You know, we think, ah, oh, these old people, you know, back in the old days, we don't have a clue, right? The advanced civilization of Egypt and their likes, right? We still have scientists who think they're smart, still scratching their heads on how they did some of what they did. Overwhelming superpower. 
the Lord kicks them, flicks them into the dustbin. Overthrows them for the good of Zion. All those nations in Canaan, gigantic people, giants that the Israelites were initially terrified by. Seasoned, hardened warriors. Massive resources, wealth, all that stuff. Here you got a, a band of pilgrims, you know, kicking up dust in the wilderness with little to nothing. The Lord flicks them to the dustbin. They march around Jericho seven times and the walls come down. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Christ's zeal. That's where our hope is. That's where our attention is. But you know, Christ's zeal should stimulate our zeal. Seeing his zeal to perform the advance of his kingdom should stimulate ours. In other words, we should have one heart with Christ. Our heart should beat after his heart. And this is a great encouragement to us because all of our little fires, if you can even call our zeal that, are kindled at his altar. Kindled by his fire. We're dampened at times and dismayed by difficulties. He's never. He laughs at the opposition in his exalted state. He's never dismayed by the difficulties. Opposition to him is nothing. In his infinite wisdom, he is orchestrating and working all of the details in a way that will magnify his glory, including the apparent triumphs, which aren't, of the enemies of God's people. All of it serves to his end. And so here we are. We're, we're instruments in this, in this kingdom. And, and we should think on one hand, what an incredible privilege to be enrolled in the kingdom as instruments in his cause, to be part of something bigger than everything else put together in the history of the world. And on one side, we think, you know, there's a sense of privilege and, and beauty in that. But on the other hand, let's keep that in check. He doesn't need us. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. None of us are indispensable. He doesn't need us. And his cause will go on, whether we help it or whether we hinder it. His cause will go on. We could, as others have, in unbelief, Refuse to go in and possess the land, to go and disciple the nations, to go and to seek the advance of Christ's kingdom. And that will be to our colossal loss. A loss in this world of joy and a loss of treasure and multiplied joy in the world to come. But though it's to our loss, it will not be to his. Because his promise is a pledge. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. And even if our generation fails to, 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 to carry forward the cause as we ought, others who follow us will renew the contest and succeed. And will reap all of the reward that comes with it. But it is not to us to refuse Rather, our zeal is to be stoked by the sight of the zeal of the Prince of Peace. 
and not to grow weary. This is the grand temptation for all of us, every last one of us. This is a wearisome world, and this right now is a wearisome time period. And we feel it physically, we feel it spiritually, and I'm the last one on the planet to dismiss any of that. It's real, it's heavy. But the Lord is saying, don't grow weary in well-doing. You shall reap if you faint not. Every last effort, every last investment, every last thing given in self-sacrificial service to Jesus Christ, we will reap. All that seed, the seeds of tears and multiple tears and gallons of tears, we shall reap joy and rejoicing beyond anything we can imagine. And the last day to see the Lord unfold all that he has done, was doing, now is doing. To be able to behold the wisdom of God and the way in which he has used his people to accomplish the things that he's done will shock and awe and amaze us to no end. But it will fill us with joy, joy in him, joy in what he has done, joy in his glory, joy in his kingdom. Government's been placed on his shoulders, and the increase of that government shall continue. He is a prince. He is a prince of peace. But there is also the prosperity of the prince that is secured by himself. May the Lord strengthen our hearts in these things. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord God of hosts, Jehovah of hosts, whose zeal will indeed perform all that has been pledged and promised. God our Father, remember thy promise to thy Son to give him the heathen as his inheritance. O Lord, grant that he would reign until all of his enemies are made his footstool. Bring forward by thy power the increase of his government. And give us, O Lord, not to grow weary in well-doing, knowing that we shall reap if we faint not. Strengthen our hands and our hearts. Intensify our zeal and help us to live for this great king. O gracious God, we would have this king to rule over us. We ask it in his name. Amen.